Colossians chapter 1 is where we turn this morning, or 2, Colossians 2 is where we turn this morning, because we are just making gangbusters progress through this wonderful epistle. Uh, Christ is honored. He is supreme over all things. We've seen that from the very beginning of this little letter to the very end. We'll see Christ is sovereign. Christ is supreme. And Colossians 2 is a section where Paul is really honing in on that false doctrine that is afflicting the church in Colossae. Colossae being a place, uh, a, a city where Paul likely did not have his own ministry, but the church that was there was established by a uh, a friend, a brother, a, a, a disciple maybe of of the Apostle Paul when he was in Ephesus for those three years. Uh, anyway, this, this church was being troubled by some false doctrine that had to do with various pagan ideas, it had to do with uh, various uh, legalistic Jewish ideas as well, uh, some mysticism thrown in there, some kind of superior knowledge that some of these false teachers were claiming they had. And it was very troublesome, and Paul was troubled by it. Epiphras, the man who, who uh, humanly speaking, had planted that church in, in Colossae, was very troubled and traveled from Colossae all the way to Rome, where, of course, Paul had been imprisoned uh, for uh, a year and a half, two years at this time. We're not exactly sure when he wrote Colossians, but, uh, but he was in Rome at that time, a thousand miles or so away from Colossae that Epiphras traveled to get to, to, uh, to Paul. But Paul is glorifying Christ. This is one of those letters in contrast to like Galatians. Galatians, I mean, Paul comes out with both, uh, how do you say, I mean, both fists kind of fighting the, the false teachers, but not the false teachers so much, but the people who believe the false teachers. How foolish you are, foolish Galatians. But here in Colossians, it's all not light and airy, but it is a positive spin. He's not focusing on, you know, this, this false doctrine. I'm not, he's, he's focusing on the positive aspect of it. He's focusing on the truth and, and essentially focusing on Christ. This is where our attention ought to be. In this brief section from like verse 8 uh, through verse 15 in, in Colossians 2, he is confronting the false doctrine regarding Christ, specifically the substitution that the false teachers were saying, well, Christ is good, but there are so many other beings that we need to worship and we need to relate to and, and you know, uh, work out our salvation through these different angels and, and uh, beings and so forth. And Paul addresses that issue, and he already has talked about it in Colossians 1 as well, but he focuses on it, focuses on it here again, and he focuses on that false doctrine of works righteousness that somehow you know Christ is good but you need to do this and you need to not do this and all these restrictions that are being put upon them he introduces it here in this passage and he goes on through the rest of the chapter uh, addressing that issue well, let me read for us this text beginning at verse 8 uh, through verse 15 i believe it is and then we'll look carefully at verse 10 paul says see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the debt, or the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, 
he has also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked at these verses back in in verses 8 and 9 and 10, that we ought not to listen to uh, not just philosophy. I mean, we, we love wisdom, right? That's what philosophy means, the love of wisdom. We love wisdom that comes from God. But this philosophy was, as he says, it's empty deception. Its, it's origin, its content is man. Men contriving these ideas and saying, this is the way you ought to live. And, and don't go to the right or to the left. Follow our path. And, and it was contrary to God. It was contrary to Christ. It's not according to Christ. It does not measure up to the... As Ephesians 4.13 says, the measure of stature, we want to be mature, right? Well, what's the measure of that maturity? The measure of stature or adulthood is the fullness of Christ. It is the measure, the truth, and the, the, the essence of Christ. And that's why he says here in verses 9 and 10 that he is, Christ is the fullness of deity. He is uh, the fullness of deity dwells in him, not as a, as a visitor, but making itself right at home in Christ. Christ is God. He is the one who is not just divine as a divine person like like Moses or Elijah or something like that. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who has come to be the substitute, the sacrifice for us. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. He lives a new perfect life for us so we can be reconciled to him. It says Christ is the fullness, but in him we have been filled. This idea of fulling, fullness, let me get the words right, fullness or filling are uh, central, really repeated throughout Paul's letter in Colossians. He talks about being filled with the full knowledge of, of God and, and knowing the, the full measure of his will and, and uh, the, the, all the fullness dwells in Christ and how the fullness of deity dwells in him and we have been made complete. And all the, the, the idea is that we're not just given a part of salvation or a part of God or a part of Christ. We're given the whole deal. We're not just given a kind of like a an incremental salvation. We have the whole thing. Now we need to work it out. We need to grow. It's kind of like a little baby. A baby has all everything they need in terms of their human uh, programming, you know, use that kind of word, just DNA. Everything they need for life is now they need parents to help them eat and clothe and all raise them up and so forth. But they have everything they need. They need to grow that out. They need to mature. They need to progress in that. But we have everything we need in our salvation. We are complete in him. We have been filled in him. We've looked at up to this point. At the end of verse 10, this wonderful passage, brief little word that he says, but again, it's so powerful. Christ is powerful. He's not just another uh, uh, created being that has, he has certain realm and rule and, and domain over here. No, he is head over all these things. He is over every throne and dominion, ruler authority, as we saw back in, in uh, Colossians 1, uh, 16 and 17, that he is the one who has created all things, and he is the one who has victory over all things. We'll see that more carefully as we go through here. But this wonderful word, why is he saying it here in the context of salvation? He's head over all rule and authority. Why does that matter? Because these false teachers were saying, Christ is, is really good. He's on the path toward God, but there are so many other middlemen and people we have to deal with, all these different angels, all these different uh, uh, emanations that come from God. We need to approach, you know, it's, it's kind of like going um, through various checkpoints to get to God. All these different angels we have to worship, we have to bow down, we need to, to uh, uh, no, Paul says, forget about that. Go to Christ, and that is sufficient. Go to him for salvation, for hope, for forgiveness of sins. He is the one that, that we, whom, with whom we have to do. These other angels, they're ministering spirits sent by 
God to those who will inherit salvation. Don't worship them. How many times do we see in Scripture, especially in Revelation, when John is there and he falls down on his face and he wants to worship this angel? He says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant, just like you are. Let's worship Christ. Worship Christ. What do these angels do all the time? They worship Christ. They go right to him. Why shouldn't we follow their example then? If the angels worship Christ, even the demons obey. They have to obey. How can they not obey Christ? If they do this, how much more shall we, who inherit salvation, who are the objects of his grace, of his mercy, of his work, his saving work? It says Christ is, is the one who, whom he is talking about here. Um, it's, you see, there's no word Christ here. How, how far back do we have to find? Okay, here we see at the end of verse 8, not according to Christ. But then he goes off and talks about who is this Christ? In, if we put the proper name in there, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in Christ, you have been filled. Who is, or Christ is, the head over all rule and authority. Now, there are, well, actually, there's really only one way to understand this word head, and that is, uh, well, two ways, I should say. There's One is a physical head, right? And most of the time in Scripture, it is talking about the physical head of, of, of humanity, uh, you know, of a human or of an animal. It talks about the head of the animal and different things. But metaphorically speaking, it can talk about that which is the uh, authority over or the controlling um, uh, object or the, the, the influential uh, deal that is in authority over all these things, not just uh, a physical head. Now, we've talked about Jesus Christ as the head of the church uh, back in Colossians 1, he, the church which is his body. So is that image, that wonderful expression that Christ is the head and we need to be filled up to the head, and we'll see that later in Colossians 2 as well, but we see that Christ is the one who gives life to the body. When the head is missing, the body dies. When the head is being honored and cared for, then all the body is being honored and cared for. When the the mind, and I, you know, I don't want to get too metaphysical about it, but when our, our thinking is right, then our lives are right. Isn't this what Romans 12, 2 says? Be transformed where? Not just in your actions, what your hands do or where your feet go, but in the renewing of your mind. So the, the head is so influential. And that's why, by the way, education is so important. That's why the fear of the Lord is so important in our education, because it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Putting him first and not just, you know, honoring him, you know, praying before you start school every day, but but studying anything, history, uh, geography, uh, physics, all these things in light of God, who is the wonderful creator and sustainer of all these things. He's the one who's the constant thread throughout our human history. He's the one who began history. He's the one who will end history. You know, all these things just happen in this time and outside of this, outside of the time and space is God. He is eternal. We're not. He is infinite. We are finite. So we want to have our head, as it were, Christ himself. We want to recognize him as the authority. He is the creator. He is the one who has uh, had victory over these things. He's the one who has bought us. He is the redeemer. I mean, all these things come into mind when we think Christ is the head. He is the big boss. He is the one that is um, uh, preeminent over all of our activities. He says he is the head. It's not something that uh, he was the head, but now there's a new guy, new boss in town or whatever kind of thing. Or, or you know, th there's a succession plan that, you know, when Christ is no longer able to perform the functions necessary to the... Uh, no, there's, there's no succession plan. He is Christ. He is the head. He is... He's it. And so for us to say, well, uh, 
for those in Colossian church to say, well, Christ, yeah, he, he's good. We need to have him kind of like on our shelf of gods that we worship and, and uh, approach and we receive our salvation from, our hope from, Christ among other gods. In fact, that's the name, a title of a book that was written several years ago. There's nobody like Christ. There is nobody like Christ. Colossians 1 made that point, that he is Overall, he is supreme over all these things. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.12 says, there's nobody else. Even the great white throne judgment, which I don't want to be at that thing, wrote in uh, Revelation 20. Um, I don't want any part of that. Who's the one on the throne? Who's the one judging? It's Christ himself. The Lord Jesus Christ will judge. He will, he will bring all things to rights at that time. But right now, he is in the world, reconciling the world to himself. How is he doing that? Through his church. We sang that song. We go to all the world uh, with, uh, how does this song go? with uh, And and bringing the message of salvation to the world. Well, that's Christ. We're his body. We are mediating his headship through the world. There, There's a theologian who said there's not one square inch, I forget his, his unit of measure, but one square little unit of space where uh, Christ how does he say it? Whereby uh, Christ could not be claimed as Lord. And that's kind of a double negative. But the point is, Christ is head, ruler, authority over every aspect of space, even places we haven't even seen yet. Unless you think all those places out in the universe, well, yeah, there's so much we haven't learned out there. But how about just in our world? There are places nobody has ever seen, ever laid eyes on, and Christ is Lord over that. How, do, how can Christ be Lord over the little uh, little beings that, that are on those those uh, sea vents down at the bottom of the ocean floor? I mean, how, Christ is Lord over the, He made those things. That's tremendous. And for us to think, well, I don't know if God is able to really care for me in this situation. I don't know if he's really aware of my situation. Or if he is, he's, he certainly can't do anything about it. Really? Our faith is so small sometimes, and we need to recognize Christ is the head. Christ is over everything. We studied in Luke's gospel, and we saw from the very beginning Christ is over uh, history. He is the one that all history is coming together toward. What's the first word that we see? Uh, the angelic word to John. You're going to have a son. He's going to be the forerunner of Messiah, the Messiah we've been looking for since, since the Garden of Eden. Uh, the seed of woman is going to rise up and crush the serpent's head. And now John's son is going to be the one who is going to accomplish that or, or begin that the introduction of that. Christ is head over history. We saw Christ as head over demons. So many times in Scripture, and we see that, and we'll see that here, rule, of, rule and authority. Christ is head over the demonic forces, and even of Satan himself. Luke 4, when Jesus was in the, in the wilderness and Satan came and tempted him, Mark Mark's gospel makes it so that it, it seems like Mark's gospel um, makes it seem like Jesus was tempted not just for that end time when he became hungry, then Satan came and tempted him, but he was tempted over that forty day experience. I mean, just a whole trial uh, of tempting experiences against Satan. But Christ conquered Satan, even especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, when uh, you know Satan would have loved for Jesus to say not. Your will, but my will to be done. Because that's what Satan said. I will be God. I will sit on the throne. I will, I will, I will. And Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And that was the victory that Jesus had there. Jesus had power over sickness, disease, death itself, 
blindness, deafness, uh, uh, lameness, or you know, the tongue that didn't work. Um, even Peter and Paul had that wonderful ministry of authority. And the rest of the apostles as well had that Christ authority over all these things. And for us to think, well, I guess, I guess we don't, we're just kind of abandoned in this world. We don't have any, any authority here. Well, we don't have the authority like the apostles had, but we have Christ's authority, which is to proclaim release to the captives. We have a gospel. We've even been entrusted with that. In fact, when Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, you go get be elected to the president and to the Senate and to the, run for mayor, local city council. I have authority. You're going to be my mediating authority. I mean, okay, I'm not saying you can't run for those different things, but what was the the impetus or what was the, the uh, substance of his command then? Because I have all authority. You go and you make disciples. Really? We're going to use your authority to make disciples? Yes, because that is what's going to change the world. And if it doesn't change the world, because this world is going down uh, in, in history and in time and in experience, it will change individual lives. And that's what we want. Peter was saved. Andrew was saved. Paul was saved. Uh, James and Stephen and all these different characters through history have been saved through the power of the gospel. Christ has entrusted that headship to us. Now, there are other examples of headship in Scripture uh, that are helpful to consider, maybe as informative. One of the main ones, of course, is the headship of a husband over the wife. I won't get into all that stuff, but Ephesians 5 speaks about that. The husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being savior of the body. There is that measure of authority and uh, uh, care for the church that Christ has uh, as head of the church, but also as husband has as head of the wife, that is not just an authoritative, um, uh, you know, there's a difference between authority and authoritative and, and, or, or domineering or dominating. There's, there's no place for that. How did Christ love the church? How did he, uh, exercise his headship? Laying down his life for her, washing her with the water of the word, all these wonderful things. It's not mean. It's not, it's not in terms of how Christ relates to the church. It is not a mean spirited, hateful, vindictive, you know, I'm the husband, you serve me kind of a thing. No, it, it is a selfless, sacrificial service, the, the husband laying down his life for the wife. There's another aspect of this, though, the headship of Christ, especially in this context of all rule and authority. Whoa. I mean, you want some exciting kind of authority, read Revelation 19 and 20. When Christ comes... That whole thing, uh, you can go back to Genesis 49, was it, when Jacob was blessing the different tribes? Judah was acknowledged, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. What's a scepter for? It's a sign of ruling and, and, and power and kingship and authority, headship. And he says the scepter shall not depart from Judah until it comes uh, to him whom, to whom it belongs. And we see this repeated as, as elsewhere. Psalm 2, we might have opportunity to look at here in just a, a short while. Psalm 2 says that Christ will rule the nation's not just with a little happy, you know, a flag or something, but with a rod of iron. And elsewhere, the prophets say he will take that rod and he will shatter the nations that do not acknowledge him as somebody takes an iron rod. I mean, this is a big thing and, and just crashes into pottery. Pottery doesn't last up well against iron. But that's how Christ is going to come. Daniel, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, 
whoa, and the head of gold and all these wonderful things. But then this, this stone that comes down, made without hands, that is Christ himself who destroys everything. And then a mountain rises up in its place. That is Christ in his glorious authority. He is head over all these, these different things. He is the one who, to, with whom we have to do. And we want to be uh, drawing near to him. We can draw near to him through his blood, through faith, through his grace. We want to do that now so that in that future day when he comes and sits on that great white throne, when he comes to break and rule the nations with a rod of iron, that we're on his side and not the ones who receive his judgment because, man, we deserve his judgment. If you looked at yourself lately, if you were to take a journal of what you did the past week, would you know? If and then put it on a balance, you know how much was godly, how much was Christ-centered, how much was was inspired and 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 filled by the Holy Spirit versus what's just humanly speaking and what what's convenient and what's pragmatic. I mean, how much are we really given ourselves to the headship of Christ? He's head over all rule and authority. That means he's head over everything else as well. He is the one that we want to glorify and honor. These two different words, he's used these various times. Rule and authority often go together in Scripture. Rule has the idea of um, um, kind of a, the, the one who goes in front. If you think of like archaeology, archaeology is a study of, of early things, ancient stuff, stuff that goes before us. In First Peter 5, it talks about the elders. Peter talking about the elders and this, the other things. And then he talks about the, the, uh, the chief shepherd, or uh, really it's the idea of senior pastor. The senior pastor is Christ. What is that word? Well, it's, it's senior, or here, ruling pastor. He is the one who is first. He's the one who is over, or the presiding, the presiding uh, elder. It's really the only place in Scripture that we see an adjective attached to pastor, just parentheses. We don't see terms like associate pastor, assistant pastor, senior pastor, counseling pastor, discipleship pastor, executive pastor. We don't see those names associated with pastor. We see pastor. Or we see Christ as the senior pastor. He is the one. He's the one overall. And we are, if you don't mind, under shepherds. If you want to put any adjective uh, on, on a pastor or shepherd, it's under because we're, we're under Christ. I don't have authority to tell you whom, who sh whom you should marry, where you should spend your money, what kind of vocation you should have, what kind of car you should buy. I'll give you an opinion, but I don't have any authority over those things. But what I do have authority is in is, is preaching the scripture and bringing us to the word and bringing us to uh, love and care for one another. That is where my authority lies. And you know, I can give other counsel, but it won't have that weight and, and the presence, I suppose, as reading from Scripture and uh, encouraging us in that way. So rule is that idea of those who are presiding over ruling, governing. Uh, we can see it um, in terms of time, like this archaeology thing, or in terms of rank, the one who has the power or dominion over these things. This idea of authority is a separate idea. kind of comes from this idea of, of um, freedom to act. You think freedom to act? What is, how is, well, I mean, how much authority do we have in our lives? To freedom to act, make choices, uh, uh, exercise our different rights. Well, Christ has every right to exercise his permission or possibility to act, this freedom to act. And various other rulers and authorities, kings and presidents and governors and mayors have a, a certain measure of freedom to act or freedom to do what is permitted. And certainly they have a, a limitation on that. They can't do certain other things. And certainly for our, in our country, the U.S. Constitution is not so much written for us. It is written for 
the government placing restrictions upon them. You can't, you can do this, you can't do this. This branch over here does this, you can't do this. And of course, that's thrown out the window in so many different ways. And yet, there was a desire to have a limitation on power because power tends to grow and it tends to increase and it tends to encroach upon other areas that are not within their original domain. Here, Christ is described as the head over those authorities, the head over those who have uh, bearing on the plans and activities of, of humans, of people. And there, there's a right measure of authority, a right practice of authority, and certainly, as we've seen throughout history, a wrong practice. Uh, and, and God has judged that in time, and he will judge that in the future as well. The nations that do not honor him, do not honor Christ, that have laws that are contrary to his word, unless we think, well, are you saying we need to have a theocracy? No, we, we have a theocracy. God is over all things. He, he establishes rulers. He takes rulers down. He establishes nations. He puts boundaries on their habitation, the, the, the extension of their uh, domain and control. And he says, when you've transgressed my word to, to, for the final time, I will judge you. Didn't we see that with the Amorites? Why was it that the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years? Because the sin of the Amorite, which is the whole uh, big category of, of Canaanite peoples living in the land, their sin was not yet complete. What do you mean their sin was not yet complete? What, they didn't have the right law? They were violating my laws. They violated everything that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had taught them, had witnessed to them, had lived in their presence, and they denied it. They are living that out. When their sin is full, I'm going to judge them. And you, Israel, are going to be my hammer. You're going to be my justice against those Amorite, uh, pagan, ungodly nations. Didn't we see it with Nineveh? I mean, there was a message. Jonah went to Nineveh of the Assyrian Empire and preached a message. Well, it was a message of repentance. Jonah wasn't so interested in their repentance. He was interested in the judgment upon them. But God used it to bring about a wonderful uh, uh, revival, repentance in that city and extended to the nation for a period of time. But then some years later, decades later, God did bring judgment upon the Assyrian nation. And the Babylonians came up, and the Babylonians fell, and then the Medes and the Persians came up, and, and they fell, and then the Greeks came up, and they fell, and the Romans came up, and they fell, and the Byzantines, and the Arabs, and the Mamelukes, and the Crusaders, all these different people. And that's just in one little piece of land. All over the world, God is working through nations. He is head over all rule and authority. Is there a time when, well, it's said about the British Empire. There was, there was a time when uh, the sun never set on the British Empire, right? You heard that statement? Well, now the sun does set every day on the British Empire because it's right down in one little island. God is the one who is active in history. Christ is the one who's going to be honored over everything. He is head over all rule and authority. We can see these, these ideas of rulers, rulers and authorities in a variety of ways. But first, let me mention the fact it says all rule and authority. So there, there's not, as I tried to bring out that Abraham Kuyper quote, uh, there's not one place where Christ's sovereignty cannot be proclaimed and established. Um, every ruler and authority is under the headship of Christ. There's not one rogue being over here or a whole bunch of uh, uh, alienated or hostile things over here that somehow outside of Christ. Uh, control or, or hegemony, if you like that word. Everything is right under the headship of him. Now, there, there's a point at which it's true, and yet it's not true. And we'll look at this in just a moment. His his rulership is established, but it's also something that is coming. We think, how can this both be? Well, it, 
it's patience. God is patient with us. He gives us time to repent. That's the whole thing. Will you repent? Will you draw near to God? Will you order your life under him? Will you, if you don't mind, come right under the headship of Christ? Or will you all go off and do things over here? You've got it. You've got your head about you, so you can. You're your own ruler. You're your own authority. No, you. You need to come under the headship of Christ. He is the one who gives you life. He gives you joy and peace. Don't try to find it somewhere else. He says this is over all rule and authority. Or you could even understand it this way: He is head over every rule and authority, not just all as a as a composite or a group but each individual ruler, each individual authority or power or uh, 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 each domain or dominion. Christ is over each one of them. So it's, it's a big category bucket, but also individually. God is over. Christ is over these things. This idea of ruler and authority can be used to talk about the uh, human, certainly human powers and authorities. Uh, for example, uh, Paul says in Titus chapter 3, remind them, the Christians, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, and so forth. But he talks about, he's not just talking about, well, he's speaking about human or civil government to be subject to these, uh, to what uh, degree is is responsible. And I say that because in, Rome, in Acts uh, 3, Paul and, or excuse me, Peter and... John, I think, were there, and and especially in Acts 5, they say, well, you can say whatever you want, but as for us, we're going to obey God rather than man. And he told us to be his witnesses. So we're going to go on preaching in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So you do what you need to do. We're going to preach the gospel. So there's a point at which that uh, we obey Christ rather than what his civil authorities mean. But even Jesus said to his apostles, when you go out preaching my gospel, uh, when they bring you before synagogues and ruler, the rulers and the authorities. So that's what happened with pretty much every one of those 12 apostles, other than Judas, of course, um, were brought before rulers and authorities. We just read, right, James was killed, Acts 12. And uh, yeah, well, that's going to happen. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be enmity against it. But Christ is head over all these things. There is even the idea that, that Christ was delivered to the rule and authority of Governor Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And so there's that human aspect of, of rule and authority. There's also, and this probably is what Paul is getting at here in this passage, not so much the human authority, which is true. He's, Christ is head over all, every category of rule and authority. But I think in this passage, especially if you look at verse 15, and then at the end of the chapter of Colossians 2, I think he's talking about the angelic or, or supernatural rule and authority. Uh, he says um, back in uh, verse 16, in him all things were created, uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And it's human authority, but also the, the spiritual realm as well. Uh, verse 10 of, of this chapter, but also verse uh, verse 15, it says he's disarmed what? The rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. Well, I didn't see Pontius Pilate being paraded around naked. Because that's what it means. Disarmed means disrobed and just embarrassed and, and shamed. Uh, Pontius Pilate wasn't treated that way, or Herod Agrippa was not treated that way. Uh, um, Caesar wasn't treated that way. There was an aspect, and I think Paul is getting at it, that this wasn't just a human thing. This is a spiritual battle that Christ had victory over in that cross. We'll look at that as we get to it. And then, of course, at the end of the chapter, he speaks about the worship of angels. 
Yeah, verse 18, it says here, worship, uh, spending your time in worshiping angels, these human or these civil, excuse me, the angelic angels, the spiritual uh, forces, like he says in Ephesians, so many different times in Ephesians, the uh, rulers and authorities, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what he's getting at here, I think. And yet, uh, you can't dis- discard the the human element as well, because this the supernatural spirits influence humans, and we think, how do how's, how does it even work? I don't know how it works, but again, Christ exercised dominion over the demons in that time. People who were oppressed, possessed by demons, Christ exercises authority over them. We see how in Daniel's uh, prophecy, we see how the the uh, prince of um, which prince was it was afflicting and and, and having a, a, a control over a certain region and other places as well. Ezekiel talks about that. The king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre. All he's talking about Satan active over kings, individual human kings. But Christ is over all these wonderful things, all these these things. We don't need to fear these things. We don't need to say, well, somehow we need to appease the local deity, the local God. We need to make sure that we offer this. That's what got Israel in trouble. Because they tried to appease Baal and uh, Asherah and and Molech and all these gods of the peoples around them. Worship God. Worship Yahweh. Worship Christ. He is the one. I go right to him. He is the head over all rule and authority. Just some ideas here. You can write down some of these scriptures uh, and, and study them, turn to them later. But Psalm 2, I mentioned, shows this. Whoa. Uh, this is, it starts with the whole idea, you know, the nations are gathering together and they want to kick off God's authority and the Lord's anointed and just get him out of our lives, cast off his fetters from us and all this. And God just laughs and not a, not a, a humorous laugh, but a kind of a condescending, um, kind of like in Genesis 11 when he says, let's go down and see what this wonderful thing they're doing. You know, this building of this great tower in which whose top is the heavens. Let's go down and see what they're doing. And God comes down and just confuses their language. He doesn't need to destroy it with fire and brimstone. He just says, hey, you're going to speak this, you're going to speak this, and you're going to go your own ways, and the whole project's going to be abandoned. And God, when he wants to judge, he is so creative in how to judge. But when he wants to bless, he is so wonderfully able to bless. And this is part of the blessing. Uh, Psalm 2 says, you are my son. This is God the Father talking to God the Son. You are my son today. I've begotten you. Ask of me. I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So what should the kings of the earth do? Show insight. Take warning. Uh, uh, serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Uh, and then, of course, the last wonderful statement here in Psalm 2 is how blessed are all who take refuge in him, in Christ. This passage in Daniel 7, another example, when uh, you know the, the predominant title that Jesus used in the Gospels is Son of Man talks about himself as the son of man. I think it's informed by this passage in Daniel 7, where Daniel kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was presented before him. This is almost a picture of Revelation 5, when the Lamb comes and is presented as the one who's able, who is worthy to open up the scroll, and, or, or take up the scroll and open its seals, was Christ. He came up, he was presented, he was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is not just a little one, it is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Wow, that's Christ. He is head over all rule and authority. Angelic, human, anything. He is over gravity. 
He can, he can call that off. He, he's over death. He can cancel that. He's over sickness, uh, uh, the decay, decay of flesh, right? Leprosy. He, he, there's nothing outside of his power and authority. Uh, just a couple passages in Revelation. Revelation 17. Uh, These enemies of God will wage war against the Lamb. The Lamb will overcome them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and elect and faithful. And this idea in Revelation 19, when he comes and um, fights again, the final battle uh, there, well, almost the final battle. There's one after the thousand year, um, the millennium, but Revelation 19, verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. Didn't we see that in Psalm 2? We did. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. He has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ's uh, supremacy, his authority is established already. Psalm 2 says it that way. We see that uh, 1 Peter 3.22 says, Christ is, is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So he's king. He's Lord of lords. Hebrews 2 says, He uh, rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ's supremacy is established. It is true. It is it is real. It is in effect. There's, it's not like he's waiting in the wings for his, uh, his enthronement or anything. No, he is king. And yet there is an aspect in which his sovereignty is yet or his supremacy is yet expected. And I won't go into all this detail, but just for example, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 24, after all these, these things have happened, then comes the end when God the Father hands, or excuse me, when Christ hands over the kingdom to, to the God and Father, whom, or excuse me, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Whoa. So everything's going to be subjected to him. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. And it goes on and talks about that. And verse 28 says, um, when all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Christ so that God may be all in all. There's that whole amazing, how can that even be in this triune Godhead related to one another and the, all these things going on? I don't understand it all, but the point is, that Christ is, everything is subjected to him, and then he turns it back to the God the Father so that God may be all in all. One other passage, I didn't have my notes, but it's Ephesians 1, 13, maybe somewhere in there, where it talks about everything, uh, so that everything might be brought under the headship of Christ. There's something that is yet to come. And it's not verse 13, so where is it? It's... <laughs> it's somewhere in that wonderful passage. Something, ah, there it is, verse 10. The summing up of all things in Christ. Well, that word summing up is everything coming under the headship of Christ. Wow. It's something that is yet to come. We have his authority established, but it's also expected. It's something that is here, and yet it's also something that is coming. How does that come back to salvation? Just quickly wrapping up. Since Christ is supreme, his salvation is supreme. There's nothing lacking in it. There's nothing we need to... You know, kind of augment our little, our salvation package. Christ provided us this much, but we have these other accessories we need to add into it, other essential items that we need to add it. No. This. Look to Christ. He is that supreme savior. He, if, since he is supreme, we must not heed lesser authorities that would lead us away from Christ. This is what he's talking about in this passage. Don't pay attention to traditions of men, false teachers, this empty deception philosophy. 
hold on to the head. Walk in him. And then finally, why be troubled by middlemen, you know, the bureaucrats that get in the way between us and God, when the king bids you welcome? The king wants you. He says, come to me. Come not through the middlemen, not through, don't have to come through Peter and Paul you and, and the saints and all this treasury of whatever. It, you come to me and I will give you rest. We look to Christ. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. Wow, it's just amazing. And it is tremendous and it gives us hope in these dark days. We think we've seen dark days, but there's been dark days throughout history from the very beginning. Well, after the beginning, after the, the Adam and Eve and the, and the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good, uh, tree of the fruit, that whole thing. You are the one who is a light in a very dark place. You're the one who gives salvation, redemption, forgiveness of sins. Please help us to hold fast to the head, Christ. Help us not to be to turn aside to the right or to the left, false teachers that are out there. Help us not even to listen to ourselves when we lie and deceive ourselves. We think, why would we do that? We need to speak, preach the gospel to ourselves. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Uh, bless him and forget none of his benefits. He is the one with whom we have to do. Please save. Please may each soul who is here this morning honor you, glorify you, trust in you, and grow. Help us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.